Welcome to CPAC 2024. We are in the midst of an extraordinary group of conservatives, yes, but I think freedom fighters and freedom lovers for sure. And we're talking with some of the most important of them, to my estimation. And right at the top of that list, again, to my estimation, is our first guest. Her name is Margaret Byfield. She is one of the country's leading experts on one of our most fundamental freedoms, namely property rights. And she has devoted much of her professional life to trying to protect them and make sure that they are not wrested from us, unbeknownst to most of us probably, among other things through something called the Natural Asset Company Gambit. She runs American Stewards of Liberty, and this is uh, an entity that I strongly commend to you all uh, as a resource on your, you know, basic right to property, which it turns out is uh, conducive to the pursuit of happiness, which you are also guaranteed under our Constitution and Declaration. Margaret, it is great to have you with us. Welcome to Securing America in person, which is an improvement over the, uh, the remote kind. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the work you've been doing, and we had a privilege of sort of tagging along on as you were putting the coup de grace in on at least the first iteration of these natural asset companies. Um, level set with us, what are those again, and why were you so determined to try to prevent them from coming into being? Well, first, thank you guys for all the work you did. I mean, you did more than just come in at the end. You really helped us stop that, and that was key, absolutely kind of key. Stuffing the football <laughs> or something, I guess. But Your timing you was did great. All, all the hard work. Thank you. Well, so natural asset companies, this is a, a an, an idea that the United Nations had actually started developing in the 1980s pretty seriously. And it has kind of evolved, but it really wasn't until the Biden administration came in that they had the opportunity to actually implement something like this in America. So the first step was to get 30 by 30 in place, which is the program to permanently protect 30% of our land and resources. So what that does... Protect. Right, exactly, by 2030. So what that does is that creates a, a group, a new group of assets of land that's protected and that is not being used. Land, what else? Uh, minerals, oil and gas, all of those things. And so the next step... But waters and air yes. and yeah. photosynthesis and well, that's, that's all manner of things. Okay. So after really kind of putting the 30 by 30 program in place, then they launched this idea, natural capital accounts, where they, the, a group called the Intrinsic Exchange Group partnered with the New York Stock Exchange to create this new investment vehicle where the, all these protected lands could be, their ecosystem rights could be enrolled in these natural asset capitals and then uh, natural Monetized, asset companies. And, well, and then um, the elites, so like China Sovereign Wealth Fund, BlackRocks, all of those, could invest in those companies and profit off of our protected lands while we can't use them. And why protected lands? You're talking about national parks yeah. and other federal lands which make up much of the west of the United States. Yes, yes and even private lands. So private lands private that have lands. conservation easements on them. Those, the way that the rule was written, those easements could be enrolled with or without the landowner's permission. Wow. And you, and so conservation easement is something that seemed innocuous and, and something that would preserve land for posterity, your children and grandchildren. What were these guys doing to upset that particular expectation? Well, a conservation easement, what a landowner does is they sell their development right to a land trust or the government in perpetuity. So that's the a idea right. They won't be developed. Exactly. So that's a right that the landowner, the land trust now owns or the government owns. And so it's a, it's a separate right. You'll see it on like the Nature Conservancy's balance sheet. They'll have a line item of how much they own in conservation easements. That is what the Nature Conservancy could enroll in a natural asset company with or without the landowner's permission, the way that this rule was written. And when you say enroll, in practice, what could that mean? Does that mean that they literally have to keep them in their pristine condition as they were, you know, enrolled? 
or does it mean that they actually have the latitude to develop them in green ways? Well, what they would enroll is what they call the ecosystem services, and that's what that's what you were getting to getting to earlier. And what those entail are these natural processes, things that have never ever been monetized before, like photosynthesis, pollination, clean air, those kind of things. And so, and then once they're enrolled, that that map has management authority over those ecosystem services, which is an indirect way for them to control the actual land. So the NAC cannot allow anything unsustainable happening on those lands. And so by the mere fact of doing that, now they have control over whether or not you're going to log it, you're going to graze it, you're going to um, grow crops on it. They ultimately are going to have that say. It was just, this whole agenda was, was really diabolical. But even more diabolical to my way of thinking, and correct me if I'm wrong about this because maybe I've got this uh, misunderstood, but as long as an activity is deemed by the NAC to be sustainable or, you know, consistent with their green agenda, they could develop the land for, say, solar farms or wind farms or maybe for manufacturing batteries for electric vehicles and that sort of thing. Is that, is that possible? That is accurate because the reason is they didn't define what they what is sustainable. Okay, so they say everything has to be sustainable, but they get to decide what that means today, tomorrow, in the future. And so... But you could have something very different going on than maintaining the pristine character of a woodland or a pasture yes. or waterway. And, and we really thought what they would do is use the NACs to gain control of the actual property. So in other words, it's supposed to be managed sustainably, so the people who utilize those lands now and own them, their productivity is going to be crushed to, where, to the point that the average landowner isn't going to be able to make a living on that land, so they're going to have to give up and sell out. Well, the NACs is the natural one to buy out that land. And um, and then at that position, in that position, they just change what the definition of sustainability is, and they mine it, they log it. In, wow! In fact, they, so just by changing the definition of sustainable, suddenly something they claimed was unsustainable becomes sustainable. I mean, the, the cynicism of this, to say nothing of the prospect that it will impoverish large numbers of people and harm our society by depriving us of exploiting God-given, you know, minerals and oil and gas and other resources, right? Yeah. So this is a product of the United Nations, uh, these natural accounts, capital accounts, are, uh, I guess I, as I understand it, a kind of bookkeeping scheme that makes these kinds of transactions somehow of value, which under general accounting, uh, generally accepted accounting principles, they're not, right? So am I missing something or is this really kind of satanic in its current? Yeah, we really, I, early on we, I, we started calling it a Ponzi scheme because that's really that's what it sure. is. Because first off, the thing they have to do is they have to put a monetary value on photosynthesis, pollination. Well, how is that done? It's not consumer driven. So the price is set literally by a bureaucrat deciding that, hey, the air you breathe is worth X and the air I breathe is worth Y. And then that arbitrary value can be changed at any time depending on who, really who's in office. And so it's, it's scary how it would really mess with our economy. Right. And with the fundamental principle of property rights. Right. And we have to take a very short break. Um, Margaret Byfield is in the house and we're visiting with her about something that she helped actually at least temporarily torpedo called natural asset companies and we're going to find out what it means for your property rights that it went down that way and will it stay that way stay tuned for more right after this
This is Frank Affney with the Secure Freedom Minute. In recent days, the Conservative Political Action Conference and International Crisis Summit addressed the damage done by the COVID virus and the disastrous response to it recommended by the World Health Organization. They heard from courageous doctors and others from around the world that the WHO's insistence on inadequately tested experimental gene therapies, lockdowns, and the rest of the so-called China model contributed to the needless death of millions globally. Now Newsweek reports that mRNA gene therapies, misleadingly described as vaccines, are being experimentally injected into our food supply. Some livestock have already gotten mRNA inoculations. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson will hold an unofficial hearing today with witnesses warning about, and in some cases harmed by, such jabs. It must also examine the WHO's bid for additional anti-constitutional powers and the possibility of our unwitting, unauthorized consumption of its big pharma donors' toxic products. This is... Frank Afney. Welcome back. We're visiting with Margaret Byfield of the American Stewards of Liberty, a really wonderful operation based in Texas, where she resides, and looking out for all of our property rights and vital interests, and we couldn't be more pleased to have her with us. Um, I just want to wrap up our previous conversation about the natural asset companies by just asking you, uh, what you painted as a picture of something that's pretty grim, it seems, for the country, for the society, but, but bring it down to the individual's level. What most of us take for granted are property rights. We buy something, we own it, it's ours. We may get taxed on it and that sort of thing, but the idea that people could take it away from us or restrict our use of it is generally not something I think we anticipate. If this were, and, and we started to talk about the partnership between the New York Stock Exchange and this IEG group that was engineering this made up accounting scheme, um, Thanks to your good work and some help that others of us gave to it, our Sovereignty Coalition most especially, they had to pull the plug on that idea, at least 1.0. So I want you to talk a little bit about is something else likely to be in the offing and what, again, would it mean for all of us if they pull this off? Yeah, so the, it was a huge victory. I mean, I can't, I can't express how important it was that we stopped that. And, and I so thank you for jumping into that fight with us. But um, they were going to authorize that with 45 days notice. They issued the proposed rule. They were going to approve it in 45 days. So we the had to get the Security Exchange, Security Exchange Commission. Commission. Yeah, and then this would have been a done deal. November 18th of 2023, this would have been over. And um, so it was just, we were, it was so important that we got this stopped. And, but there, there's more legs to it. Like you said, first off, IEG, which you have to remember, IEG is funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. So that tells you a lot about what the ultimate agenda is. Yeah. And so they have also started saying in the press that they will be back with a new, with a new kind of um, sanitized concept, I think, and, and IEG has already sanitized their website, so they've taken off a lot of things that obviously really revealed what they were doing and, and didn't look favorable. And so but the Wayback Machine is going to keep us yes. surprised of what really yeah, is going it's, on there. It is interesting comparing the language, and, and because I'm very curious, and what did they change? What was important to them to change? Yes. And so that's what I've been watching. But Tracking that. Yeah. And so um, so that, that was really important, but they have said they're going to come back in, with a new vehicle. So we have to be ready for something like a NAC. It probably won't be called that. Um, but it'll be something different, and it's going to be dressed up looking landowner friendly is, is our prediction. Because they have to get landowners to buy into this, to sell it. But the other thing that's going on is... I thought the agriculture industry might be one of their targets. Is that yes, because just reading their news articles, um, it looks like they're really courting big agriculture right now. So, so we need to be mindful of that. Um, the other thing, though, that is going on is the White House is also following a tandem strategy. So they've created something, a tandem strategy. So they've created something called natural capital accounts, and they're on a 15-year plan to get these ecosystem rights, ecosystem services on the federal balance sheet in order to increase the collateral base 
and I think as well to create a new way to tax the American people. So now we've heard about carbon credits. That, that's part of this. But they've been talking about biodiversity credits. So now if we all have a, a biodiversity account, and let's say you drive an EV and I drive you know, a regular combustible engine, you know, I'm going to be debited more of my biodiversity credits than you would. Absolutely. There's a model. Yeah, there's a million ways that this could play out. And the key thing to understand is that they are going to monetize these natural processes, which no one has a right to own, and really are not property. Property. Federal. Right. Property is something that you can exclude people from, that you can contain. You can't, you can't exclude people from colonization or photosynthesis, so it doesn't qualify. But the mere fact that they are trying to monetize it means they are also attempting to claim ownership of that, and nobody has a right to own that. So that's the real scary thing, so we're watching that very, very closely as well. I wanted to ask you about one other piece of this that uh, is sort of the macro level. Um, what you've said at the micro level, or though this is a very big topic, I mean, we're talking, I, I think it was um, uh, Treasurer Oaks of Utah who came up with this number the first time I heard it, which is that the value of everything in the world is currently $1.5 quadrillion. And this scheme is conjuring up the value as being actually five quadrillion. And you, you've mentioned on many occasions that as you, I think you just touched on a moment ago, one of the upshots of this for the federal government could be having new assets on the books, new opportunities to raise debt, which is already crushing. But I wanted to ask you about, more generally, how you see the idea that essentially, whether it's the United Nations or whether it's the World Health Organization or whether it's the World Trade Organization or any number of other multilateral organizations are now not only under the effective control of the Chinese Communist Party, but are trying to essentially eviscerate our constitution, our limited form of representative government in favor of global governance or, you know, some sort of dictatorship under the rubric of things like the WHO. What, what are your thoughts on this larger problem? You know, the NAC issue would have um, propelled that to an absolutely new level because foreign entities were invited to invest in these, meaning China's sovereign wealth funds could have invested in these, held our assets through these NAC accounts, which they would have a competitive interest in doing, right. to say nothing of a strategic one. Prevented us from using it yeah. and literally bring this country to the to its knees because they would control our natural resources. And you know, Bill Walton, the gentleman you introduced me to, who you obviously know very very well, uh, I love how he said this. It would have it would have allowed China to take over our country without a fight. And he's absolutely right about this. This was and and worse in a way even then all of that, which is pretty awful, to then go ahead and exploit those resources exactly. to their benefit, uh, having put us out of the business. So if all of that is true, and I, I've come to respect you tremendously for your serious study of and mastery of these arcane matters and help in illuminating them in a way that mere mortals can pretty much understand, but if what we're talking about, Margaret, is really, at the end of the day, a, a, a larger, by far, larger agenda of, well, I think Barack Obama used the phrase, fundamentally transforming the United States of America, uh, is that, in fact, what's in prospect here? And are you reasonably confident that we can continue to fight these things as we did handsomely in the NAC issue. Yes. Yes to your first question. That is what's going on here. Remember how Karl Marx defined socialism? The abolishment of private property. They have to eliminate private property in America in order to take over this nation. And this was just a such a, a brilliant way for them to try and do it. To your second question, can we beat these? Absolutely. And that is the message of the NACs. I mean, you have to realize we took on Wall Street, the Security Exchange Commission, 
IEG that's funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and has a whole host of supporting organizations behind it, big, powerful organizations, and the Biden administration. And in three months, they had to pull back this proposal because the people spoke up and said no. And so, um, and, and also because, and this is, this is the key message. I'm over time. Sure. I hope you got okay. all that in. I'll be right back with more right after this. Night after night, in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows, and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat. This new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. Here at CPEC, we are taking stock of the various extraordinary people who are in the company, and we're going to be talking next with one of the most extraordinary of the extraordinary people. Her name is Karen Sigamund, Dr. Sigamund, actually. She is, among other things, a woman who spent some of her prime years working for the U.S. Navy, trying to find and um, help them destroy Soviet submarines back in the day. She's gone on to many other things, including teaching a generation or two of young people, including young women. We've also been able to enlist her great help through a marvelous organization based deep behind enemy lines in Los Angeles. It's called the American Freedom Alliance, and she does an incredible job of putting on programs of various kinds and teaching the rest of us about the challenges that we face and what we need to be able to do about them if we are to survive our country. One of those happened to be right here at CPAC just yesterday and she let me be on the panel, but aside from that it was terrific and we want to talk to her about it and uh, future plans that Karen Sigaman has for the American Freedom Alliance and its program, this one called World War G. G. <laughs> Not to be confused with World War III, but that's we right. know who's responsible. Well, that's right. I so think tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, and well, what first, you thank you so much. Thought it Such accomplished. Kind words. Um, we did, we had done last year a conference, World War III, the early years, but focused a lot more this time, very specifically drilling down into who is either behind World War III or benefits the most from it or is influencing most of the various lines of attack on everything, on the United States, on global, globally, um, our freedoms, just generally speaking, and that is Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. So we wanted to be very specific about the various threats that they pose 
to, to freedom yes. and so the American way. So this was a two-hour program. The one in Los Angeles, uh, World War III, was a two-day program. Two-day program. So concentrating yeah. the messaging, but you had just, again, present company accepted an extraordinary we truly array did. of experts. Yes. Really, our A-team, I think, at the Committee on the Present Danger, China, and a few others. And, and others. We were able, I think, to rock the house. Um, tell us about who was the cleanup batter. Yeah, the cleanup batter was Stephen K. Bannon. The who, Stephen K. Bannon. The, the, the one who, um, when it comes to threats to freedom and strategizing, but also the deep history that underlines everything and all the connectedness of everything that's going on. I mean, I don't know anyone who connects the, the dangers that we face to the deep historical roots of things or parallels, plus ties it to action, action, action. There's really nobody to be done. on the face of the earth with that kind of um, both sides, all sides yeah. of, of Certainly threats that we face. Certainly, on our side of the football, uh, that, as he likes true. to say. And let, let me just say to our audience, I really admire Steve Bannon tremendously. He has been incalculably important in a lot of the work that we do here at Secure Freedom, Securing Freedom, and not least at the Committee on the Present Danger of China. In fact, it was really his idea, talk about action, 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 yeah. to create the Committee on the Present Danger of China. And he's been a very powerful force multiplier for us ever since. But I've actually come to think about uh, his institution now, the War Room, uh, as a national treasure. And I immodestly like to think our program, which runs a couple of hours before his on Real America's Voice, as the front porch of the war room. So we are benefiting both from his leadership, but also we think yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. helping to set the stage for what he is doing in his own program. So Karen, um, when you took stock with all of us yeah. about the nature of Xi Jinping's, well, I call it strategic arson, as you know, uh -huh. um, how helpful do you think it was for, well, first of all, the audience in the room, but yeah. hopefully people who will be experiencing it now through going to the videotape, as they say, right. to understand the dots that are here to be connected. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, many of the people in the room, and we had a tremendous turnout, really, truly phenomenal, yeah. Um, and I bet we could do it again today and get an equal equal amount. I joked with CPAC about, can we get a twofer? Um, people came out saying, I kind of knew a lot of this, but I've never seen it put together. I really understand the multifaceted nature, the myriad fronts on which they are attacking, the myriad fronts on which we are feeling it and, and being subjected to it, all the consequences of all of this, and, and it's it's really kind of, it's hard to wrap one's mind around, but when you put it all together, when you think about national security, domestic security, your book, The Indictment, it's not only external, but elite capture of our very own governance. When you think, you know, the Cold War, generally speaking, the US, we understood the enemy was the Soviet Union and we, generally speaking, fought against it, certainly with Reagan, his committee on the present danger. Now we know our elites are on the side of the bad guys, and it's really, that, that was the point that kept being made also, and one of the fundamental conclusions that most of the speakers wrapped up with is, if we don't get Donald Trump in office, it's over, it's really over. Why Trump, first of all, Trump against any Democrat, obviously, but Donald Trump was the one man and is the one man whose, whose strength, knowledge, dedication, passion, strategic comprehension, he really is the one man standing between the globalism generally, the Chinese Communist Party specifically, and our, and making America, what I say, America again. 
We need, to, before we can be great, we need to turn back to who we are as a nation, and we're lost. Right, first principles. Yes, exactly right. So, Karen, uh, I, I appreciate you saying that, and the, the interesting thing to me is that uh, Donald Trump's appreciation of the problem with the Chinese Communist yes. Party long predated him coming to office. I mean, he'd yes. been writing about this, he'd been thinking about it, he'd been warning about it. Yes. For, I think d decades, if I'm not mistaken. And what we need this time around, if he is, please God, going to be elected again, is to ensure that he is surrounded by people who share That's right. his very, I think, realistic yeah. and very um, deeply concerned attitude about what the CCP is up to. And by that, I certainly mean no more Stephen Mnuchin's uh, at the exactly Treasury right. Secretary's office, undermining him at every turn. But I wanted to talk to you about one particular line of attack. You mentioned their unrestricted warfare and the degree to yes. which they've been at this for Everything. a long time. Yes. And as you know, I'm wearing the pin about the World Health Organization. Yes. You kindly gave me an opportunity to talk a little bit about it. And Reggie Littlejohn, one of our other great experts on the subject. Truly. Um, what is the importance, as you see it, of elevating our awareness about what the Chinese Communist Party, yes, the World Economic Forum, yes, the European Union, yes, yes. Bill Gates, yes, yes, Big Pharma, yes, yes, and the Biden administration yes. are trying to do yes. under the guise of, um, you know, worrying about and protecting against pandemics. That's right. And I would add the UN. Um, it's, it's, all, it's all together. Um, not only is that just, I mean, your list, it's a horrifying thing but that it's done under the guise of, for your safety, as all revolutionary bloodbaths have been, it's always for your safety, it's always public safety, public safety. exactly right. It always has been, it always will be, because that it's so easy to other everybody else because we want grandma to die. So it's really, it's a per they're trying to design a perfect storm. And they've been doing a very good job. And one way we know that this is a war is that one can lose it, and it feels very much like we have been losing it without even recognizing what's going on. The destruction that's happened here is, is horrific. No, you're talking about COVID. All, all of and it. And the vaccines and yes. how we were lied to. But I'm interested in just the concluding minute or so we have talking to you about the role that the World Health Organization played well, in lying to exactly. us and inflicting those damages on us and how putting it on steroids and is likely to make matters considerably worse. It may well be all over with the with the um, the the treaty that they're pretending isn't a treaty, passing that in such a way that literally we're saying to the WHO, which is to say to the Chinese Communist Party, Bill Gates, all of those. Here you go. We created this beautiful nation, this beautiful nation on these first principles, unique in the history of the world. Here you go. You guys, you guys take it. That's literally what that is doing. And under the guise of anything, um, X or gun violence or climate change, any excuse will allow the WHO to come in and say, we've got this, guys. And and you have to do tree. what we tell you it's to done. do about it. Oh. Uh, Karen, we could go on and we will we on another occasion soon, but this is such a helpful overview and I particularly you. appreciate your clarity about all of these things oh, and your you. leadership. And one of the things I hope we're going to be able to do is take this show on the road, uh, especially to the swing states Absolutely where right. we need Americans who will be voting in this election cycle to understand what's at stake. So with your that leadership, we'll get power. this done. Thank you. Thank you, Karen Zigerman. We'll be right back with more from CPAC 2024. You're not going
This is Frank Affney with the Secure Freedom Minute. In recent days, the Conservative Political Action Conference and International Crisis Summit addressed the damage done by the COVID virus and the disastrous response to it recommended by the World Health Organization. They heard from courageous doctors and others from around the world that the WHO's insistence on inadequately tested experimental gene therapies, lockdowns, and the rest of the so-called China model contributed to the needless death of millions globally. Now Newsweek reports that mRNA gene therapies, misleadingly described as vaccines, are being experimentally injected into our food supply. Some livestock have already gotten mRNA inoculations. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson will hold an unofficial hearing today with witnesses warning about, and in some cases harmed by, such jabs. It must also examine the WHO's bid for additional anti-constitutional powers and the possibility of our unwitting, unauthorized consumption of its big pharma donors' toxic products. This is... Frank Afney. We're back. We are continuing our conversation with some of the best and the brightest here at the Conservative Political Action Conference outside Washington, D.C. And this is my annual visit with Hans von Spakovsky. I call him HVS. We don't just get together once a year, of course. We get together with some regularity, but not in person. But we do here, and I'm always pleased to be able to do that. Hans is a grand poobah at the Heritage Foundation with responsibility, among other things, for election law and integrity, and also, in the case of our borders, the immigration issues. A very important portfolio. Nobody does it better. We're delighted always to catch up with him. Hans, welcome back to Securing America. Thanks. In person. I'm going to have to talk to uh, our president, Kevin Roberts, about, For a promotion. Adding, about adding Grand Poobah to my time. Grand Poobah should be <laughs> right on the card. Uh, Hans, the thing that has vexed me more than just about anything else, and I'm just a dabbler in this, this is your life's work. But in light of what we have seen happening around the country, the evidence that continues to accrue of election integrity problems, shall we say, that so little seems to have been done in advance of this critically important 2024 election to fix identified problems. Why is this? And, and is there more going on that I'm aware of that should give us comfort? Well, don't be too pessimistic, okay? Because a, a lot of it, as you know, we're a big country, and it depends on what state you're in. Um, if you're in a state like California, New York, Nevada, yeah, things are bad. Those are, um, those, those are the, probably the worst states in the country in terms of, for example, New York, California, you don't need an ID to go vote. <laughs> um, on the other hand, uh, there are many states, mostly red states, that have improved things. And in fact, the 2020 election acted as a spur. You know, state legislators finally realize, gosh, we really do have vulnerabilities in the system, okay? And I'll give you an example of this. Georgia and Texas. Both of the states had um, good voter ID laws, but they only applied to in-person voting. And obviously, what happened in the 2020 election? As you know, the left used COVID as an excuse to try to greatly expand voting by mail, even though we didn't really need to do that. Um, well, so both of those states passed big reform bills, among which they extended their ID requirement to absentee ballots. And that so upset meaning mail-in as well. Mail-in ballots, yeah. That so upset the left, which as you know is against any kind of reform that you know, Joe Biden went to Atlanta and made this big uh, uh, polemic speech claiming this was Jim Crow uh, 2.0 because they did things like say, well, when you 
vote with an absentee ballot by mail, you actually uh, have to uh, use an ID to do that. You have to use an idea to do just about anything in this country, isn't that the case? Well, and, it, and the it, argument that, well, if, if I guess if you're black, you might not be able to get yourself an idea is, is racist. It's, it is a patronizingly racist attitude, and it is not one shared by uh, voters. Voters, overwhelmingly, the polling shows that the support for voter ID is about 80%, and that's a majority of white Americans, black Americans, Hispanics, and it doesn't matter whether they're Democrats, Republicans, or independents. They understand that's a common sense. Of course. And yet there are still states. You mentioned three. Right. One of which is a potential swing state, Nevada. Yeah. Uh, California and New York are probably basket cases. But you did share with me before we sat down that there's actually a little bit of good news out of New York City, yeah, at least. Look, Tell us other, about that. Look, the other big thing that's going on, and this is part of the immigration problem we have, right. is that big blue cities are trying to legalize voting by aliens. Um, New York City, which has a lot of voters, uh, did... Of aliens. Yeah. They said that um, last year they passed an ordinance, you could vote in local elections once you reside in the city for 30 days. You realize that means that... Uh, transients. I, well, not just transients, but like if you work in the Russian embassy or you work for, for one of the... Um, Russian or German, uh, I'm sorry, Russian or Chinese propaganda sheets like Pravda, you could vote in local elections. Fortunately, a lawsuit was filed, and a New York Court of Appeals, just within the day, last day or so, said uh, you can't do that because the New York State Constitution says you have to be a citizen to vote. But that's that's part of the push. That's look. That's one of the reasons Democrats want an open border. They see all of these illegal aliens coming in as future voters who will help them retain power. Future being now, not just, you know, when they become citizens yeah, and all yeah. the rest. I mean, one of the biggest problems we have in this area is that uh, there's some bad law out there, uh, wrongly decided court decisions that make it almost impossible for states to do what they ought to be doing, which is requiring proof of citizenship when you register to vote. But as things stand now, Hans, as I understand it, basically if you register for a driver's license, you more or less automatically are given the permission to register to vote and presumably will get the opportunity to do that. Is that how yeah, this is that's, that's that's a real problem. Voter you know, and DMVs are not very good at distinguishing between somebody who comes in who's a citizen and somebody who's not. In fact, a lot of them just don't want, don't want to deal with it. So they just ask anybody. In fact, this is such a problem that just a couple of years ago, the Secretary of State of Pennsylvania was forced to resign after uh, a legislative committee found out that because of a glitch in their DMV system, uh, aliens were getting registered and had been getting registered for years and uh, the Pennsylvania state government has refused adamantly to say how many aliens that is, that the low estimate is at least 10,000, and they've refused to say, well, how many of them voted? In fact, there's a lawsuit that has been going on for years trying to force them to finally admit how many aliens they registered and how many have voted in Pennsylvania elections. And you, you and I both know Pennsylvania has close elections. It does, and they count. They yeah. count. Hans, we have to take a short break. We're going to come back and we're okay. going to talk more about this border issue with the great Hans von Spakovsky of the Heritage Foundation. Stay tuned for more right after this. Back, we are continuing our conversation with a collection of extraordinarily important individuals here at the Conservative Political Action Conference. 
in the environs of Washington, D.C. Specifically, at the moment, we are continuing a conversation we've been having with Hans von Spakovsky, one of our regulars, a very, very important resource for all of us at the Heritage Foundation, where he oversees, among other things, election integrity matters as well as immigration. And uh, we've just been discussing with him the election integrity business, um, and it led into a conversation about, well, people coming across our open border, in fact, our destroyed border, some would say, to uh, replace uh, voters in this country by essentially disenfranchising those of us who are entitled to vote by allowing millions of people who aren't to do so. And Hans, I want to visit with you a little bit more about what the border insecurity situation is translating into at the moment in terms of, uh, well, in insecurity, not just in our electoral processes, of course, but for our homeland as well. And, uh, you know, we had a thrash here in Washington in recent days in which the Biden administration tried to jujitsu this process whereby the uh, Congress was going to uh, add border security reform to foreign aid measures, right. supplemental, uh, it didn't work out, and, and suddenly the Republicans are being blamed for keeping the border open. And I, I hope you'll parse this for us because it just yeah, but that compute. that bill wasn't reform. That bill was intended to legitimize allowing literally uh, thousands of illegal aliens across the border every day. Right. And to illustrate what a con game it was, is um, look, Joe Biden issued a, a statement at the White House in which he said, oh, I really need this bill uh, to shut down the border. That's the exact wording he used, to shut down the border. And the moment that bill lands on my desk and I sign it, I will shut down the border. Well, the reason that's a con game is he didn't need that bill to shut down the border. He's got that authority now, and he's had it from the first day he came into office. And what, what but is it fair to say, far from wanting to shut down the border, exactly. it's always been opening it up. And you know what astounded me, Frank, about that was that, remember, uh, Donald Trump actually did shut down the border. Remember, he issued a travel order saying aliens from a certain number of countries, most of the terrorist nations, could, could not come into the United States. That's shutting the border. And what happened? Biden's political allies all sued him. It went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court issued a decision, Trump versus Biden, saying the president has the authority to shut down the border. So any anyone who believes that Biden actually would have shut down the border if he'd gotten this bill, I, I think I have some swampland in Florida I could sell even you. Even if the provisions did that. Right. But you're saying that he didn't have any intention of doing it anyway. No, he had no intention because he could do it now. this bill that was engineered to, as you say, legitimate the process, not uh, That's fix right. it. That's right. So it was an act of political jujitsu, though. It to was. To transform this into the Republicans are responsible somehow. Yeah. But in practice, how would you characterize the Republicans' conduct in all of this. Have they been trying to actually shut down the border? Uh, maybe they well, certainly to differentiate between the House and the Senate. Uh, yeah, they just can't, they know they can't get anything through. That's their big problem, and that's why... Look, so H.R. 2, for example, the House bill, was that the real deal? Yeah, if that had been enacted, yeah. would that have helped? Yeah, it would have helped a lot. And, you know, they have done everything they can to support uh, governors who actually want to do something about this, like like Texas. Mm -hmm. And um, look, anyone who believes that, oh, the whole system is broken, this, 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 this problem can't be resolved, look, all you have to do is look at one example, Eagle Pass in Texas. Eagle Pass was one of the most crossed areas, huge numbers of illegal aliens coming in. Uh, Greg, Abbott, Greg Abbott comes in, by the way, law school classmate of mine. Oh, no kidding. He comes in, brings in the Texas National Guard, and what do they do? They put up concertina wire along that entire 30 miles, and what happened? The number of illegal crossings dropped almost to zero. Mm. 
And what is the Biden administration's reaction? Instead of helping them, instead of saying, listen, we'll help you put up even more fencing to stop this, they go in and they start cutting holes in the fence and, and they end up in court trying to prevent Texas from putting up an effective barrier. That tells you everything you need to know, one, about the actual intent of the Biden administration, and second, that this is a solvable problem. Now, Hans, you've spent a lot of time in senior levels in the Justice Department. You know a right. thing or two about, uh, among other things, the Constitution. And when we're told that Texas trying to secure the border from invasion is unconstitutional under circumstances like these where the federal government is not doing its job in that regard, where do you come down? Well, look, the Supreme Court's made it pretty clear that um, the federal government has the ultimate authority on immigration issues. But the Supreme Court has also said that as long as a state isn't doing something that um, attempts to go against federal law, they can do it. And there's plenty of examples of that. If Look, if Texas was trying to prevent federal officials um, from stopping people crossing the border, that would be a problem. But in fact, they're trying to assist the, other way around. the federal government to enforce uh, its job. I immigration law. And immigration law says you cannot cross the border illegally. And in fact, if you do, you have to be detained, which the administration is refusing to do. It's not doing I'm particularly concerned, and this is a topic for another day, because we're out of time for today, about the Chinese, seemingly People's Liberation Army personnel that are pouring across that open border. Yeah, because they, they, it's easy. It's easy, and actually it's being facilitated by yeah. the same federal government. It is. It's scandalous. It's dangerous. It's going to get Americans killed. And the fact that we are still debating the wisdom of securing our border is, I believe, one of the greatest acts of malfeasance in the history of our country. Hans von Spakovsky at the Heritage Foundation is standing against it. God bless him. We look forward to further visits with him in the future and to talking with the rest of you again tomorrow. Until then, I hope you'll go forth and multiply.